keep my mind on my work. Thinking about Thorwald? And you and your friend Doyle. Did you hear from him again since he left? Not a word. He said he was going to check the railroad station in the trunk. Must be still at it. Has something on your mind? It doesn't make sense to me. What does? Women aren't that unpredictable. Mm. Well, I can't guess what you're thinking of. A woman has a favorite handbag. It always hangs on her bedpost where she can get at it easily. And then all of a sudden she goes away on a trip and leaves it behind. Why? Because she didn't know she was going on a trip, and where she's going, she wouldn't need the handbag. Yes, but only her husband would know that. And that jewelry. Women don't keep their jewelry in a purse getting all twisted and scratched and tangled up. Well, they hide in their husband's clothes? They do not. And they don't leave it behind, either. Why, a woman going anywhere but the hospital would always take makeup, perfume, and jewelry. That's inside stuff, huh? It's basic equipment. And you don't leave it behind in your husband's drawer in your favorite handbag. Well, I'm with you, sweetie. I'm with you. Tom Doyle has a pat answer for that. But Mrs. Thorwald left at 6 a.m. yesterday with her According husband? According to those witnesses. Well, I have a pat rebuttal for Mr. Doyle. That couldn't have been Mrs. Thorwald. Oh. Or I don't know women. Well, what about the witnesses? We'll agree they saw a woman. But she was not Mrs. Thorwald. You're listening to episode 89 of Sassmouth James Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Have you ever wondered what the women in the courtyard think of their neighbor, L.B. Jeffries? In Rear Window, Hitchcock's picture from 1954, Jeff has been looking and watching nonstop since the cast was put on his broken leg six weeks ago. He's had an eyeful. But what about his neighbors? Does Mrs. Thorwald ever wish she were as lucky as Jeff and had a nurse to fry eggs or a beautiful, well-dressed young man who brought in a catered lobster dinner from 21? I bet she's dying for a decent meal. Does Miss Lonely Hearts ever look at the young blonde girl kissing Jeff hello and think, isn't she a little young for him? Does she worry about him sleeping in that chair again? What about Miss Torso? Does she feel creeped out by the man who keeps his eyes peeled on her every movement? Does she feel safer at night knowing that he can't break into her apartment because he's in that chair? Does the sculptor downstairs wonder about the photographer who lives on the floor above? Does she think he should get busy taking pictures instead of looking in other people's windows? How about the woman on the top floor with the little dog? When the little dog's neck is broken, she could at least eliminate him as a suspect amongst the list of potential killers. Jeff thinks the women don't see him watching, but they do. Women know that someone's always watching. That's why Lisa Fremont carries a Mark Cross bag when she plans to spend the night in his apartment. She needs a discreet bag. She can't be caught by snoops carrying obvious luggage to spend the night in a man's apartment. Look what happens when the police detective, played by Wendell Corey, gets an eyeful of Grace's negligee and slippers sticking out of the case. He can't hide the judgment on his face. 
He gawps at the chiffon sticking out of the business-like satchel as though it were a stag reel. In a picture about voyeurism, Hitchcock invites the viewers to think about our own ethics of looking. Before we meet the hero of the story, viewers learn about him by what the camera shows us in his little apartment. Above a smashed camera are framed pictures of natural disasters and accidents, denoting a man who lives to capture the awful and the unexpected. He wants to be in the thick of the action. Most telling of all for me is the portrait displayed on the lid of his light box. It's a negative blown up to the standard 8x10 glossy size. The negative portrait is composed of a spooky contrast, that inverted slash of jarring light and dark. Next to the light box is a stack of magazines. On top is a cover of a photograph as it should be. It's a model in a shawl neck frock over a tagline about the latest Paris fashion. Our hero doesn't think much of fashion shoots or glamour. For the man with a leg and a cast, glamour is only interesting in the negative flip side. Then the camera rests on Jimmy Stewart wearing his cast, dozing in a wheelchair, perspiring in a heat wave. Thelma Ritter, as the insurance company nurse Stella, arrives to check up on him. Jeff uses the time to complain about his girlfriend. Jeff whines that Lisa only cares about a new dress, a lobster dinner, and a new scandal. Like many men, Jeff assumes that what he does is serious and important, and what women do is trivial and insignificant. Lisa's too perfect. She's Park Avenue. If only she were ordinary, he gripes. If Lisa were ordinary, he would look right through her, just as he does with Miss Lonely Hearts. From the minute Grace Kelly makes her entrance as Lisa Fremont, she dominates the small bachelor pad. She takes up space and makes noise. The crinolines in her ball gown rustle in the airless flat with all the racket of autumn treetops on a stormy day in October. She brings the city inside this dreary little flat. She moves about the room with familiar efficiency as she turns on the lights and models the latest fashion straight off the Paris runway. Lisa informs Jeff that it cost $1,100 and that even if she had to pay for it, the dress would be worth it. She tells him that we sell a dozen a day in this price range, which makes you think she's a buyer at a high-end department store like Barney's or Bonwit Teller. She's an independent woman and highly sought after. Lisa need not rely on the kindness of strangers. She can pay men to do her bidding, like carry up a dinner catered from 21. Jeff is fractious and ungrateful. He's cruel and tells her to shut up more than once. He diminishes what she does and how she dresses. Those high heels would be perfect in the jungle, he says with a sneer. Maybe the worst of all is when he pretends to care about her interests. 
Lisa mentions that she had met theatrical agent Leland Hayward and his wife Slim for cocktails. Slim Keith was admired for her individual style for decades. She was the eponymous Hawksian woman while married to director Howard Hawks. She had a unique, fresh style and a signature deep voice that Hawks copied for Betty Bacall into making her the screen persona, Lauren Bacall, for To Have and Have Not. When Lisa mentions the agent and his wife, Jeff interrupts and asks what Mrs. Hayward was wearing. Joy bursts into Grace Kelly's whole body and face, and she starts to mime the beautiful Italian handmade something or other that Slim wore, until she realizes that Jeff was only being sarcastic. He has no interest at all in what a stylish woman wears. But clothes obviously mean a lot to Lisa Fremont. Lisa's outfits say something about her character, the world she thrives in, and something about her relationship with Jeff. Lisa's wardrobe also says something about the plot. In another scene, Lisa appears as fresh as budding spring that makes so much noise, it's like a bell hung on a cat's collar. Although the suit is high fashion, it's not what most people would characterize as slinky, but the way that Grace Kelly moves in the scene seems more seductive than when she appears in the penoir set hidden in the Mark Cross bag. As Lisa carefully removes the pillbox hat, she reclines on her side across the cot that doubles as a massage table for Jeff. She's still holding a pair of white gloves in her hand. In the scene's blocking, Jeff is stationed directly behind her in a wheelchair. The way she artfully drapes herself on his bed is a distraction when she's listening to the update about what Thorwald has been up to all day. Jeff's thinking about what it might be like lying next to Lisa. Her suggestive but casual pose takes Jeff off guard. Then Lisa removes the suit jacket and reveres reveals a white halter neck blouse, which leaves her back and shoulders bare. For the first time in the scene, Jeff really seems to listen to what Lisa has to say. She shows him an angle of vision he lacks. He may know about saws and sample cases in the middle of the night, but he hasn't begun to fathom a woman and her favorite handbag. If a woman keeps it by her bed, It means she needs to get at things whenever she wants, and she's unlikely to leave it behind. Women aren't that unpredictable, Lisa tells Jeff. A woman would never keep her jewelry in a handbag to get twisted, scratched, and tangled. Jeff responds to Lisa's rear window logic as though it were a page from the official feminine handbook. She further explains that no woman would go anywhere except the hospital without makeup, perfume, and jewelry. It's basic equipment, she tells him, giving him the simplest rationale possible. Let's keep in mind that Elizabeth Taylor managed to put on her lipstick in the ambulance ride to the hospital when she went for her tracheotomy. 
and Lana Turner grabbed her lipstick on the way out the door when the building was on fire. For women of style, it's necessary equipment, not just basic. Jeff learns over the course of this film that style has a method and discipline. It's orderly and predictable when practiced faithfully. It's what prepares women to meet the world. In another scene, Lisa appears in a floral print frock in goldenrod yellow. In the dress, Lisa blossoms. She becomes resourceful, brave, and daring. This is my favorite piece from an extensive high-fashion wardrobe Edith Head created for Grace. The fit and flare cut is ultra-flattering, and it shows that when you're well-dressed, you can do anything. Grace in that goldenrod dress is an answer to everyone who thinks you have to wear khaki for an adventure. The dress is a rebuttal to people like Jeff, who think being stylish means you're shallow or incapable of action. Hitchcock presents Lisa Fremont as an argument for the power of style. Traditional thinking has always divided substance from style. If you have substance, or want to appear as though you do, then you're not supposed to care about how you look. If you want to be taken seriously, you're supposed to say that clothes don't matter. It's all tied up with disparaging women as silly airheads who only care about appearances. But that's not what we see with Grace Kelly's character. With Lisa, especially in the goldenrod dress, we see that style isn't separate from the substance of her character. It's part of it. Style is more than how she presents herself to the world. It's how she inhabits the world. Lisa's embedded style is bold, unique, fearless. It's what makes her able to climb up a fire escape and straddle the air in high heels to sneak into Thorwald's window. She's not ornamental. She's resourceful and highly intelligent. A dress with a full skirt is Grace's second skin. It doesn't prevent her from action. It's what enables her to make the move in the first place. Lisa Fremont turns a little breaking and entering into performance art. The way Hitch told it, when he proposed that what she should do in the scene to climb up the fire escape, she looked at the building and then climbed up without pause. Then she looked over at Hitch and said, like this? When Grace climbs over the balcony railing, I marvel at the way she smooths her skirt down in one sweep of her arm without looking back over her shoulder. The gesture signals a woman who knows how to move in clothes. She's unruffled, like when a peacock shakes open his feathers and waits for admiration. She knows how to operate her basic equipment. While Grace carries out her mission to retrieve Mrs. Thorwald's wedding ring, the silver fox in the chair across the courtyard works himself up in a lather. The suspense of the scene is agony for Jeff and for the audience. While Jeff watches Lisa, he lives a fantasy of being able to watch her as he does with the other women in the courtyard. In another sense, Jeff also sees her for the first time. He's in awe, watching her do what few men would dare. 
She scales a building in a dress and high heels, risking her life to prove a man killed his wife. Jimmy Stewart shows viewers all the conflicting emotions his character has, surprise, fear, and lust. Forgive me, but the scene is also erotically charged. If you close your eyes and listen to Jeff while Lisa is in Thorwald's apartment, it sounds like the sex noises Jimmy Stewart might make. His voice hovers between pleasure and pain. He moans. He's unable to form words at one point. He just kind of holds a noise that gurgles in his throat. After a struggle with Thorwald, and Jeff has fallen from the window, he now has two broken legs. But before he passes out from the pain, Lisa reaches him, and he has a chance to leer at her. He sees her for the perfect woman that she is, finally. I'd say there's a bit of a lesson for Hitchcock in this as well. For the man who famously referred to actors as cattle, he makes assumptions about what Grace can do or how she is that are all drawn from the surface. When he saw her in the negligee that um, she referred to as peach parfait, for the night when she spends with Jeff, Hitch took Edith's head aside and told her to put some padding in the cups. Edith conferred with Grace, who refused to wear falsies. Instead, the women decided to work around the director. Edith took in a pleat and fit at the front for a more snug fit. Then Grace stood with her back very straight and her shoulders back. Hitch was pleased with the alterations. He thought she wore the falsies he had asked for and made some comment about, oh, there, isn't that better? But the star and the designer knew better. Hitchcock had decided to leave Warner Brothers after he finished Dial M for Murder. The studio was struggling under debt and and a lack of cash flow. Jack Warner had called for a 90-day halt on new production and issued a 50% salary cut on front office executives. Lou Wasserman, head of the MCA talent agency, had negotiated a new contract for the director with Paramount Studios. The deal with Paramount was so sweet that Hitch summarized his new contract by noting that when he began production on Rear Window, his creative batteries were fully charged. Included in his Paramount contract was a $150,000 salary per picture deal, plus 10% of the profit after the studio received twice their initial investment, along with perks for travel and other amenities the full extent of which have not been made public. In an unprecedented move, the studio also agreed to give Hitchcock ownership of his films back after a period of eight years. Suddenly, it was raining cash after decades in the film colony. Rear Window began as a story called It Had to Be Murder, published by Cornell Woolrich in a crime fiction magazine in 1942. Producer Buddy De Silva had originally bought the rights to the story as part of a collection called After Dinner Stories, which contained six by Woolrich. 
After De Silva died, the collection was sold to Orange Productions, which was owned by talent agent and Broadway producer Leland Hayward, who just so happens to be mentioned in the film script. Hayward bought the screenwriter-producer John Josh Logan into the team, who wrote a 13-page treatment for the studio. Hitchcock bought the rights to the story and Logan's treatment for $25,000. He then asked his agent, Lou Wasserman, if he knew a writer called John Michael Hayes, who had worked often on a, a radio show called Suspense. It just so happened that Hayes was also a client in MCA, the agency that was owned by Wasserman. Hayes had been writing since he was a teenager, first as the editor of the National Boy Scouts paper, The Eagle, and then as a local cub reporter. When he was only 18, he received an offer to write a series for the Associated Press about a young man's impressions of government in Washington, D.C., Hayes had an abiding interest in film, which developed into a serious passion during his service in the Pacific Theater during World War II. He was assigned as a projectionist to a military unit. He was given a manual for a projector and told to study it and learn how to operate the machine. In the daytime, he screened instructional films. At night, he screened a movie. At one point, he had only one film to show the the troops, a print of Alfred Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt, starring Joseph Cotton. John Michael Hayes estimates that he saw the Hitchcock picture 90 times. At first, he watched it as entertainment. Then he studied it as art. And then he viewed it like a blueprint for filmmaking. Hayes had every line of dialogue committed to memory, which meant he could change a reel on the projector without turning around to look at the screen. When he first met Hitchcock for dinner one night in the Beverly Hills Hotel, Hayes downed two martinis on an empty stomach while he waited for the celebrated director. When Hitch arrived hours late, he retreated into his usual gourmand routine and ordered double martinis, several courses, and bottles of vintage French wine. Deep in his cups, Hayes launched into a monologue that began with how he had seen Shadow of a Doubt 90 times and developed into a forensic critique of where Hitch went wrong in each of his pictures. The next morning, in the middle of a hangover shame spiral, Hayes felt he must have been so boorish and offensive in his blowhard critique that he would never hear from the director again. To his astonishment, Hitchcock did hire him to write the script for Rear Window. Later, Hitch admitted to Hayes that he hadn't remembered anything about their dinner together other than Hayes talked a lot, which he took as a sign of confidence. Before meeting the screenwriter in Beverly Hills, Hitch had attended a a cocktail reception. He had consumed so many martinis before dinner that he was sloshed by the time they were on the first course. Hayes signed for $750 a week. After he became a success through his collaboration with Hitch, one reporter noted, 
John Michael Hayes looks like a Hollywood scriptwriter as played by a Hollywood film star in a Hollywood film about Hollywood. The two men clicked immediately. Like Hitch, Hayes believed that an emotional roadmap had to exist for audiences to care about the characters. Hayes believed that most Hollywood pictures had a great opening and no ending. He cautioned other writers about showing pages to a producer or front office before a script was finished because they might ask for changes and ruin the whole thing. Hitch collaborated with John Michael Hayes for the first time on Rear Window. Their teamwork was so successful that it launched Hayes from a successful career writing for radio and limited experience with B-picture scripts to one of the biggest names among Hollywood screenwriters. After Rear Window, Hayes signed with Paramount for three other pictures with Hitch, making a whopping $15,000 a week. They went on to make To Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, The Man Who Knew Too Much, before they had a colossal falling out. Back to Rear Window, Hitchcock assembled the rest of his dream team. No one else had been um, considered to play Jeff but Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy took a low salary, banking on the back-end deal that proved to be a smarter investment. Hitch had Robert Burke chosen as director of photography. Joseph McMillan was in charge of art direction, of building the enormous set the most elaborate ever built in Paramount, which included 31 apartments. Edith Head came on to to, uh, design the costumes. They had first worked together in Notorious. George Tomasini edited the picture. In one of their early meetings about the script, John Michael Hayes told Hitchcock that he felt it was important to unite the audience right away. When people enter the theater, he said, they are strangers. Someone next to you has an armrest. A woman in front wears a big hat. Behind you, someone's munching on popcorn. A couple talks too loudly. Hitch agreed. He asked Hayes, how would you do that? With laughter, he replied. Hayes added Thelma Ritter's character, Stella, to add a vaudevillian flavor to the picture. A salt-of-the-earth type who provided comic relief and common sense. She served as a one-woman Greek chorus. After Stella makes wisecracks about how she predicted the Wall Street crash because the head of General Motors had to pee ten times a day, Thelma Ritter has the audience not only laughing, but eating out of her hand. For Rear Window, Hitch continued to use a storyboard method where each shot was sketched beforehand, which then hung on the walls around his studio office. His pre-production method left little chance for the film to be cut any other way than what was in the can. As usual, meticulous attention was paid to detail. Gordon Cole, head of Paramount's property department, was so thorough that he contacted the 21 Club and asked them to send out a wine bucket, plates, and napkins for use in Lisa's takeaway lobster dinner scene. The Breen office came sniffing around before the script script was finished. Breen himself made a series of warnings about suggestive content connected to a film about voyeurism. 
As filming began, many of the most objectionable points were laid to rest when the production code office administration officials were invited to the set. The distance from Jeff's window to the view of Miss Torso in her underwear put censors at ease that nothing was too close up. Paramount simply ignored most of the conditions that Breen tried to impose. Lisa Fremont's character was inspired by three women, Anita Colby, Mel Lawrence, and Grace Kelly. When Hitch first chose the Woolrich story for his picture, he imagined her as a version of his friend Anita Colby. In the 1930s, Colby was the highest paid fashion model in America. She was known among those in the trade as the face. Colby was far more than a pretty face and slim figure. She had a business acumen to match her physical allure. She worked as an advertising executive for Harper's Bazaar magazine. In the 1940s, she signed a deal with uh, David O. Selznick to be the new feminine director for his studio. For Selznick International, she designed a finishing school of types for contract stars such as Ingrid Bergman and Jennifer Jones. She created lessons in deportment and style to develop his stars. Colby also went on to write popular columns and a book about style etiquette for women. She received frequent dinner invitations from Hitch and his wife Alma. John Michael Hayes also based the emotional arc of Lisa's relationship with Jeff on his own wife, Mildred Louise Hicks, who used the name Mel Lawrence during a professional modeling career. In an interview, Hayes recalled that he was initially as reluctant to marry as Jimmy Stewart's photographer. But then he was in a car crash with his girlfriend, Mildred. He watched her slide out of the car across the California highway amid the wreckage of metal and broken glass. He was trapped inside. He thought in that moment, before he was knocked unconscious, that he would never see her again. In his panic came clarity. He knew he loved her above anything else and had to marry her as quickly as possible. They did. Hayes also took inspiration from meetings with Grace Kelly as he wrote dialogue for her character. Hitch prepared him for the meetings by saying that Grace had a reputation in Hollywood for being icy and cold, and he wanted the writer to emphasize another side. Hayes soon learned that Grace was intelligent, curious, cultured, but also enjoyed a bawdy joke and didn't take herself too seriously. Jimmy Stewart said that Grace was anything but cold. He told an interviewer, everything about Grace was appealing. She had those big, warm eyes, and if you played a scene with her, you'd know she wasn't cold. Stewart also praised Grace Kelly's acting craft. You can see her thinking the way she's supposed to be thinking in the role. You know she's listening and not just for cues. Some actresses think and don't listen. You can tell they're just counting the words. Hitchcock noted that most actresses arrived for a meeting wearing blue jeans, but Grace Kelly stood out because she wore white gloves when they met. 
Grace Kelly began wearing white gloves while she was enrolled in Ravenhill, a convent primary school in Philadelphia. The nuns required the girls to wear white gloves to and from school each day, and the habit stuck with Grace over the years. Fellow Catholic Alfred Hitchcock responded to that quality of discipline in Grace. Hitch claims to have only seen her on film in the screen test she made for Taxi, where she was asked to speak in an an Irish accent, playing a pregnant woman who hires a taxi to look for her husband. Grace didn't get the part, but she did receive other parts based on her test. John Ford saw her screen test and asked her to audition for Magambo. Hitch saw the test for Taxi and requested that she meet him for Dial M for Murder. Grace, biographer's stress, was not the favorite child. Her father, Jack Kelly, had made a fortune from the construction business and shrewdly avoided speculating in stocks so that when the market crashed in 1929, the Kelly fortune remained intact. Jack Kelly was a former Olympic gold medal champion in rowing. Margaret, Grace's mother, demanded a discipline regarding proper conduct and appearance that was so high it no doubt prepared Grace for the expectations MGM had for its film stars. Jack Kelly valued sportiness above all in his children. His favorite child was the oldest daughter, Peggy. When interviewed by the press during Grace's prominence as a film star, he would often note that he always thought Peggy was the one who would distinguish herself and go far. Grace, by contrast, had been sickly and introverted as a child, and she didn't care for sport. Grace took an interest in in the stage, perhaps inspired in part by her uncle, a celebrated Broadway playwright, George Kelly. He won the Pulitzer in 1926 for Craig's Wife, which became a star vehicle for Rosalind Russell on screen, directed by Dorothy Arzner in 1936. Joan Crawford starred in the remake as Harriet Craig. Grace went to New York to see her Uncle George's plays, and in turn, he encouraged her dreams for the stage. When she was a teenager, Ingrid Bergman's performance in Gaslight made a big impression on Grace. She later noted of Bergman's role as the woman driven mad by her husband, I couldn't imagine where that kind of acting talent came from. By the time Grace left high school, she was determined to make a career on the stage. Years later, Judith Quine, who was a dear friend and bridesmaid for Grace, recall the family's dim view of a stage career. Jack Kelly saw acting as a slim cut above Streetwalker. Margaret Kelly tried to soothe her husband by telling him that Grace was likely to fail and soon return home. The only way her father would consent was for Grace to live in the Barbizon Hotel for Women in New York. Located on 63rd Street, it also happens to be the address of Lisa's char- of the character Lisa Fremont. The Barbizon vouched for the reputations of career-minded women from good homes. Listing the hotel on a resume was, for many employers, a noteworthy reference of good conduct in itself. 
women had to provide three references and complete an interview if they wanted to move in. Residents adhered to a dress code and curfew. Men were not allowed past the lobby, ever. Although the rooms were tiny and most had shared bathroom facilities, the Barbizon included spacious areas for socializing. The hotel, hotel had a dining room, provided afternoon tea with sandwiches. There was a swimming pool, a gym, a small stage, a library, and a music room. It was a great place for women to launch themselves professionally. Grace enrolled in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, where she studied acting in a school whose alumnus included Katherine Hepburn, Rosalind Russell, Ruth Gordon, and Spencer Tracy. Grace fell for one of the drama instructors, a guy named Don Richardson. He was 11 years older, Jewish, and separated from his wife. They began a passionate affair. Grace made the mistake of taking him home to Philadelphia to meet her parents. The only sound over dinner came from the cutlery. The Kellys made snide comments about Richardson's religion and marital status. Then Grace's mother accused her of taking up with him just to help her career. Instead of relying on her father for support, Grace signed with John Roberts Powers Modeling Agency and worked her way through drama school. Her initial pay was $7.50 an hour, but soon she was making $25 an hour and more than $400 a week. Grace had as much modeling work as she could handle. She did fashion shoots and advertising for everything from Matt's Max Factor to Lux Soap. She even did television commercials for toothpaste and cigarettes. After she finished her course in the academy, Grace was invited to join the Bucks County Playhouse, which had launched many careers on the stage and screen. For her debut on stage, Grace starred in a revival of her Uncle George's first play, The Torchbearers, from 1922. The play was a satire of an amateur theater company. Also during that summer season, she played cousin to Catherine Sloper in a revival of The Heiress. From there, Grace made her Broadway debut when she was only 20 years old, playing in Strindberg's The Father next to Raymond Massey. When Hollywood called, Grace assumed it would be another short-term assignment, a brief diversion from her work on stage. She signed for two days' work on the picture 14 Hours. It was about a man on a ledge who threatens to jump. Grace made $500 for playing a woman on her way to sign divorce papers who considers or reconsiders when she sees the drama unfold with the man on the ledge. With the money she made, Grace purchased a mink stole. Grace was reluctant to sign a seven-year contract with MGM. She finally agreed to do so after the studio said two words, Gable and Africa. Even after she agreed to sign, she stuck to two unusual clauses that she wanted in her contract. MGM was taken aback from demands being made by some nobody from their standard contract, 
but they eventually gave in and added the clauses to Grace's contract that she could work on the stage in New York and she could keep New York as her primary residence. Grace Kelly condensed her Hollywood career into a few years. From 1951 to 1956, she made 11 pictures, most of which were filmed in the last three years of an intensive period of filmmaking. She won an Oscar for Best Actress in The Country Girl, but it's her role as Lisa Fremont that I find myself returning to over and over. Each time I discover a new bit of business from Grace, how when she turns on the lamp, she doesn't blink, or how she doesn't catch the judgy looks from Tom Doyle when he looks at her uh, what's inside her Mark Cross overnight case. She's beyond his petty Victorian sensibilities. In 1956, when she married a prince, I always thought she did so because she grew tired of juggling wolves. But it's the least interesting part of her life. In Penny Marshall's book, she recalled a time when she met Grace Kelly, who was then, by of course, known as Princess Grace. Penny asked her if she missed acting. Grace replied, what do you think I'm doing now? The following books helped me to write the episode. High Society, The Life of Grace Kelly by Donald Spotto from 2009. Grace Kelly, Hollywood Dream Girl by Jay Jorgensen and Manoa Bauman from 2017. Edith Head's Hollywood by Edith Head, published in 1983. Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Lightness and a Darkness and Light by Patrick McGilligan from 2003. Writing with Hitchcock, The Collaboration of Alfred Hitchcock and John Michael Hayes by Stephen DeRosa, published in 2001. My Mother Was Nuts, a memoir from Penny Marshall, published in 2012. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 90 when I talk about Angela Lansbury in If Winter Comes from 1947. Thanks very much.